0: This is the start of a new short, short series, four weeks, called Consume the Endless Demands of the Monsters that We Worship. We'll be back in Matthew in no time, but we wanted to spend some time on this topic. And in order to understand this topic, I'd like to take you back a couple thousand years. And so we need to use our imagination for a few moments. So go back to 3,000 years, roughly. There's a whole thousand year gap, two to 3,000 years, whatever you want. And picture yourself uh, in an ancient city. And in this city, there would be dozens of temples. And there's dozens of temples because there are dozens of gods and goddesses. Ancient people worshipped, you know, sun god, moon god, river god. There's gods of war, gods of beauty, gods of lust. There's all kinds of different gods, goddesses, and deities. And so every major city is going to have dozens of these temples. Now picture, you are a, let's say you're a A young woman and in this city there is a special man who you want to notice you and in fact um, you want to get his attention you want him to notice you and and when you're not busy uh, during the day you start to like daydream about him like finally finally noticing who you are you guys hit it off you fall in love you get married and you live happily ever after the problem is he never notices you and as you're watching him which you kind of creepily do, uh, you notice that he doesn't notice you, but he notices another girl. We'll call her enemy girl number one. Um, And she gets his attention. And so you begin to sort of creepily watch her. And you notice that on a regular basis, she goes to the temple of Aphrodite. And on a regular basis, usually around once a month, she brings a small kind of wooden statue that she's carved, and she presents it at the temple to Aphrodite. And you begin to reason that, you know, because she's making this sacrifice and this offering to this goddess of beauty, that maybe Aphrodite, this goddess, is in turn blessing her, and that's why she gets Prince Charming number one's attention. And so then you go, well, okay, I I need to one-up that situation. So I'm not just going to bring some little wood statue that I carve. On a regular basis, once a month, I am going to bring a sacrifice of silver. I am going to present silver to the goddess of Aphrodite in hopes that she blesses me with some type of supernatural beauty that will finally get this dude's attention. Another example, let's say you are a young man going off to war. And you trust in your training and your skills. You trust in your fellow soldiers. um, And you trust in the commanders and the leaders. But you you want a little extra backing here. And so what you would do is you would go down to another temple, uh, this time the temple of Mars, the god of power and war, and make a sacrifice. Now, you know that the gods will take um, any old sacrifice like weed and grain. um, These little statues are silver. But what the gods really like is the sacrifice of blood. And so you bring three bulls and sacrifice those bulls on an altar to Mars in order that he might bless you in combat. And so what both of these cases are doing, you're taking something of lesser value in your life and giving it as an offering to the thing that you think is of greater value. So for the woman, the thing that she values most is getting that guy's attention so that they could fall in love and get married. And she's willing to sacrifice lesser things in order to obtain her true heart's desire. Now, this type of sacrificial system uh, doesn't just take place on an individual level. It can take place on a corporate level. So, for example, let's say that city is now in a region that's experiencing a great drought. And the drought is so bad, there's all kinds of fears. People are worried about the future. I mean, life and death hang in the balance. So what do you do? You get not just one or two people to sacrifice, you're going to corporately, kind of collectively come together and offer silver and gold and goats and bulls to the gods and goddesses of sky and rain and cloud and storm. And in these types of actions, sometimes you'd see things like 5,000 bulls sacrificed by a community crying out for the skies to open up and for rain to come down. And in each of these cases, you are demonstrating your loyalty, your commitment, your worship to this deity in order that you might sacrifice lesser things to get the greater thing. Now, what you have to remember is that this is the default operating system and understanding of the world for human beings all throughout history, all across the globe. It was the presupposition of human beings all throughout history that there were supernatural Beings that were invisible to the physical eye. Nevertheless, they believed that they were real. They believed that they were more real than the physical. And so in a city, there would be dozens of temples to tons of gods and tons of goddesses, and people would make sacrifices to them. And the way the system works is there's a hierarchy of value, and that's represented by the triangle. The things on the top of the hierarchy of value are the things that you value most that you love the most, that you desire the most. And as you go down, there's lesser things. And the way the system works is you take something of lesser value, lesser on that hierarchy of values, and you offer it up to sacrifice or to demonstrate your devotion in order that you might obtain the things that you think you truly want or the things that you love most. And this type of thing went on for thousands of years in thousands of different cities and communities and villages. Again, it is the default operating system, what was presupposed about how the world operated. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to this deity, to this god, or to this god. Now, in the middle of all that, there's this unique people group called the Hebrews. And these people, these ancient Israelites, had the belief that there was only one true God, and that that one true God is the only God that is worthy of worship. It was fundamentally distinct than the other views of the day. So it wasn't that they didn't believe in other supernatural or spiritual beings, but they believed that there was only one person who was fit to sit at the top of the hierarchy. And this God says over and over again to them, I am the only one that you ought to worship, and you should love me chiefly. Love me with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and I, in turn, I love you. It was a unique relationship in the big picture of things. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that relationship is communicated again and again. Worship me alone. Don't worship the idols. I love you. You love me. Now, that's probably most clearly illustrated in the Ten Commandments, So in the Ten Commandments we read, you shall have no other gods before me. The first one. I'm at the top of that hierarchy of values. You love me primarily and chiefly and don't put anything above me. And the second command flows from that. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And this is talking about idol-making. And the reason why it's the commandment number two and flows from the first one is that people in the ancient world, they're believing in all these gods and goddesses, but then they had to have temples. And in the temples, you would make an image, an idol, a statue that stood in place of that which was invisible. So if Aphrodite is invisible, the physical markation, the physical kind of representation of her in the temple is the idol or the statue. And so the God of Israel says... You don't worship anyone else and don't be in the business of making these other additional temples with these idols inside. You don't do that. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, this command is pretty clear, but all throughout the Old Testament, we observe again and again and again that Israel doesn't necessarily obey this, right? Like They're worshiping false gods a lot of the time. It's funny in the kind of in the academic world, in the scholarly world, there'll be papers that are put out every so often that'll be like, new archaeological evidence now clearly demonstrates that despite what Christians claim, Israel was not monotheistic. They didn't believe in the one true God like we now think. We know they worshipped multiple gods, and it's like, you guys, are, you gotta be kidding me. The whole Old Testament told you that already. The command was to worship the one true God and every other chapter, and then Israel worshiped these false gods. Of course there's evidence of other gods being worshiped in Israel because that was the wrestling that Israel had throughout their history. It happens again and again and again. Now there is a point though where Israel thinks they're doing pretty good with this issue of idolatry. They think they're doing really good. And they begin to look out and they say, you know what? We're, we're not idolaters anymore. We don't worship these false gods anymore. And people go, well, how do you know that? Look around. There's no other temples. There's no other, look at. show me an idol. There's no idols in this entire land. We've cleaned up the problem of idolatry. And in pride and arrogance, Israel says, we're no longer idolaters. And then God gives this word to the prophet Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord and the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, and they set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. This is a significant move in not only the history of Israel, but the history of humanity and its relationship with idolatry. So, Israel, they don't have any more of these false temples with these idols in them. But God says, No, 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 don't, don't think that you've got it all solved now the idols have gone into your heart, which changes the definition of what an idol is. Because remember, an idol is merely a statue that stands in place of the deity being worshiped. But now that the definition is fundamentally changed. An author and pastor by the name of Tim Keller defines it like this. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, to give you what only God can give. So remember that triangle? It's, an idol is essentially anything that gets placed above God. It's, it's the thing that you find most value in, most significance in. It's the thing that gives your life meaning and purpose. It's the thing that kind of gets you up in the morning. It's the thing that you will cling to, that you would like, you'd rather die than lose it. It's that which dominates the top of the triangle of the hierarchy of your values. It is chiefly what you love and desire. Now, there was um, research done by Oxford, done coming out of the economic economic collapse of 2008. Some of you remember that time period, the housing crisis. It was a very difficult time, stress and anxieties through the roof. Some of you might remember it acutely in that, yeah, I was stressed out of my mind. I had so much problems and financial issues. Many people lost jobs and money. Some of you might, you, you, it's acutely painful to even think about it because you lost homes in that time period. You lost a house, things you worked for. Now, one of the things that's not often talked about at that time period is, is not just the, the loss of house but the loss of life. In that time period, the research from Oxford showed showed that there was a jump of the suicide rate of about 10,000 people in the two subsequent years. I mean, 10,000 people per year in those two subsequent years. And they recognize there's all kinds of layers to this. There's, there's added stress, there's anxi- anxiety, there's, there's shame that happens when you lose your job and you can't provide your family. It's not like, okay, some people lost some money and then the suicide rates jumped. I mean, there were stress upon marriages, the shame, all kinds of things going on. Mental health issues, depression, all kinds. Of, so, so don't make it simple like people, some people lost money and then they killed themselves. It's much more complicated than that. However, some of the stories that took place among a category of people that we would say are the extremely wealthy were fascinating because a part of that 10,000 increase in suicides were people who were CFOs of extremely large and successful corporations, CEOs, people who were big time money managers, people who had millions upon millions of dollars. So they didn't just lose a home, they lost 25 homes that they owned. And they didn't just lose a little money, they lost millions upon millions of dollars in a short amount of time. And many of these people, CEOs, CFOs, big-time players in the business world, they would end up taking their lives as well. And you could read about what some of their friends said after. And one of them was haunting. One One of the people who took their lives, one of his best friends said that, yeah, when he lost it, it broke his spirit. It broke him. And see, you could see that... There's a special type of despair that takes place when we lose the thing that we value most. Whatever is at the top of that hierarchy, the thing that we live for, we breathe for, we might even die for, when that thing's stripped from us, when it's robbed from us, there's a despair that can set in, an overwhelming despair. And there's a difference between like an overwhelming sadness and an overwhelming despair. Because we've all had times in our lives where we were overwhelmed with grief and sadness, right? But, but there were other things in our life that helped us endure. They, it's not like the other things made the sadness go away. It's not as if this, the, the other things um, made life great. But they, in some sense, helped us endure the immeasurable suffering of the moment. We had other structures in our life to help us endure the immeasurable suffering of the moments. Despair, however, is when the very things that might get you to endure that are a part of the things that are taken away. Your ultimate meaning, your purpose, the reason why you get up in the morning, the structures that help you interpret reality, when that thing is taken from you, the despair can be overwhelming. And for some of these people, when they lost their millions upon millions of dollars, it was too much. It was too much. The Apostle Paul has some profound words about the nature of the relationship between humans and idols. the book of Romans, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Okay, this is deep, and we could spend a whole series just on this one section from Romans, but let me get to like the heart of the issue. Paul is saying that human beings, just by looking out at the world, can know some things about God. He is not saying that Human beings can look at the world and they're going to know that uh, 2,000 years ago the Father sent the Son and Jesus died on the cross for their sins and he rose on the third day and then they know all about the gospel. He's not saying you, you see that out in nature. But what he is saying is that if a human being honestly looks out at the world, they should be able to conclude at least some things about God and his nature. So for one... If the universe is some great big place and even if you didn't have telescopes you're just an ancient observer you clearly see that the world is big then there has to be a being that is either bigger than that or possibly infinite in power to create said world and then there's things like morality and ethics so if you believe in things like morality or ethics or that there is objective beauty in the world you, you would conclude that, that that has to come somewhere from somewhere. If there is some kind of objective moral good, where does the moral good come from? Or when you see something beautiful, you might ask, from where does the beauty come from? And so you don't get it all figured out from nature, but you could start wrestling with some issues about the existence and reality and character and nature of God. Paul says... That human beings, rather than doing that, they end up suppressing this truth. Like, rather than acknowledge what's out there, they suppress the truth which is like ridiculously and, and horribly offensive to modern people because we like to think we're all like by default pretty good people and most people grow up in pretty good and sure, there's some bad apples out there. My husband uh, sitting next to me right now, um, but for the most part, we're all good. You know, or like cousin Bubba right here, like, you know, like we're all pretty good except, you know, I got to bring him to church because, you know, he needs to change his life type of thing. It um, falls like, No, you don't understand even the things that are evident, which you don't even need someone to tell you. Like you suppress that which is obvious and true. And by the way, that plays out historically again and again and again. There are things that are plainly seen and demonstrated by creation alone that human beings deny. They suppress it in sin. They suppress that truth. And so he goes on from there. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Again, that's dense, but take, focus on the part where I've underlined that says exchanged. Essentially, reality is composed of two beings— There's the one creator, the eternal, uncreated one, and then there's creatures. And when I say creatures, don't think like little animals or pets or something. What I mean by creature is anything that's a part of the created order. So there's God, the uncreated creator, and then creatures. Paul is saying what human beings have done is they've exchanged the glory for the immortal God for the creature. Rather than giving glory to God, the creator, we give glory to things in the created order, mere finite creatures. We see that all the time. We take the glory that is due to God and give it to something else. And this is what's crazy. Now, Paul says, what is a possible punishment or consequence of that type of idolatry? It says, therefore, God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. This is really easy to miss, but this is, this is incredibly profound what Paul is saying. What is the consequence or punishment? What is the possible consequence or punishment for idolatry? God gives you up to what you want. He says you can have more of it. You want So, you're bent on acquiring more, you're greedy and you're selfish and you want more and more and more, God says, okay, go down that path. You can have it. And then what happens? The punishment is like embedded in the process of you acquiring more and more because you get more and you're never happy and you're more sad and it's eating you alive. It's destructive. So you have to understand that like one of the worst things that can happen to a human being is they actually get what they actually want. It's one of the worst possible things. And if you've been a Christian a long time, you might have like experience on this where go back 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you desired something. You wanted it so bad. And you would pray to God, please God, give me this one thing. I will do anything for this thing. Just please get me this. And now... 10 to 15 20 years later you look back and you say thank you jesus that you didn't give me what i wanted thank you that you said no do you know where i would be do you know what my life would look like if i actually got what i wanted when i was 18 when i was 25 when i was 30 now it's not to say everything you pray for like that is wrong But I am saying, if you've been a Christian a long time, you probably have moments where you look back and you say, Thank you, Jesus, I didn't get what I wanted. And so Paul is is speaking to us, and if we could use a metaphor, we could say it like this God designed human beings to drink water. God designed us to experience thirst, so that when we're thirsty, we know we need to drink water. The problem is rather than going to like the living waters, like picture like a creek that's fed by the spring water. Like you could, man, you could bottle that up and start selling it. Spring water full of minerals, nice and cold, perfect. Rather than going to living waters, what human beings do because we've been created to thirst and to drink water, we turn from that and we find this sort of like murky, gross puddle of mud that's polluted with water that's just pretty much filled with filth. Now, when you're thirsty and you drink from the murky puddle of mud, it actually quenches your thirst for a little bit. It helps. But you keep drinking from that water, from that puddle, and over time, it's making you sick and it's poisoning you. All the while, there's still the the spring water, the living water, the creek water and Paul is saying rather than worshiping the creator worship the creator we've turned to creatures to idols and going to idols is like drinking from this water that satisfies a little bit and it sure quenches your thirst a little bit but over time it's killing you and warping you and poisoning you and you go to that type of water so long you look at your life and you realize how much it's been poisoning you over the years So these are two quotes from a book that the pastor I mentioned earlier, Tim Keller, wrote. One's from Boris Becker, a tennis player, and then uh, an actress who's still alive, but she's in her, her latter years now, Sophia Loren. Boris Becker says this, "'I had won Wimbledon twice. Once as the youngest player, I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It is the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy, I had no inner peace.'" her in. I had everything, awards, marriage, beauty, but still, she said, in my life, there is an emptiness that is impossible to fulfill. It's like you keep going to the murky, poisonous water, and it's satisfying a little bit to get you to the next day, but then you keep drinking it, and you look back at your life, and you see you're still empty, you're still thirsty, and now you're poisoned, and, you, and there's a new type of despair that can set in. An early church theologian, Augustine, says this But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things, to love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved, or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. People back in the day just talk better, man. <laughs> like that's almost poetry. Like if I were to space that out, it could, I could almost fake like Augustine wrote a poem. To love less that which ought to be loved more and to love more that which to be loved less. I like, could be like, this is beautiful. We don't know how to talk anymore, man. <laughs> These people were great. Okay, so it's complicated, but you get it. Like, if you're gonna live the right life, you need to learn, love the right things and not love certain things. But you also shouldn't find yourself loving things that ought to be loved less and things that are, you're loving less in your life that ought to be loved more. And then he says, like, you don't wanna put two things on the same level thinking they ought to be loved equally when they shouldn't even be placed on the same stage. And so remember, there's like this, this hierarchy of values. And what Augustine is saying is not that it's wrong to love anything else but God. He's saying, no, you ought to love lots of things, but they have to be put in their right order. They have to be put in the right place. God has to be at the top. And then you also love and desire things underneath it. You can't get the order wrong. Now, at this point, there's always like, even if you won't say it out loud, you might be thinking this. You're like, well, one, I think it's a little selfish that God says he has to be the guy at top. Like he demands love. Like he has to be the one in my life that's chiefly loved. Like, look, first off, someone with your moral credentials shouldn't be challenging almighty, infinite God. Secondly, secondly, Because God is infinitely pure and good and white and true and holy, his commands are good and true and right and holy. So it's not only that he is the being that is worthy of being loved chiefly, but in doing so, you're actually setting up your life in a way that leads to wholeness and joy and completion. So, for example, you might be saying, Yeah, man, I think it's kind of messed up. Like, you know what? I'm going to love God, but let me just be real. I love my kids more. I love my kids more than God. I want to love my wife more than I, do, than I love God. And at first, that might seem like a noble endeavor, but you have to stop and think about that for a moment. Because, wait, wait, okay. You love your kids more than God. They are higher on the hierarchy of values. Okay, so what are you doing? Your kids are now functioning in the space where God ought to exist. In other words, your kids have become functionally your God. And guess what? Your kids cannot bear the weight of being your functional God. Your kids cannot bear the weight of being your Lord and personal Savior. You put that weight upon their laps and the structure will collapse. Your spouse, your wife, your husband cannot bear the weight upon their back of being your Lord and Savior and God. They can't do that. They're not made to. And when you make your kids God and make them live as if functionally they are your God, all kinds of things will go bad. So in desiring to love your children above anything else, you actually might be damaging them. Why? Because if you treat them in a way where they function as a God in your life, that will become unbearable. They will break under the weight and pressure and stress that you've put upon them. You most likely will be smothering them, stunting their maturity and growth because you've got to protect them at every possible thing. And in doing so, you are attempting to love your children and actually possibly damaging them. So God has to be at the top of the structure. But there's even better news too because putting God at the top of the structure isn't at odds with loving your kids more. It's not as if loving God first is at odds with loving your kids. But in loving God the most, you are actually increasing your capacity to better love your wife and kids. So as you grow in love of God, you will grow in your ability and capacity to better love things that are lesser on the hierarchy of values. So picture like a cup. like Say there's an eight ounce cup and it's filled with water. And the cup is your capacity to love and it's filled up with water. Got eight ounces of love. The more you love God, the more your heart grows, the more your ability and capacity grow. So it's as if the cup grows. Now you can hold 12 ounces of water. Now you can hold 16. Now you your big old giant... 32 ounce cup. As you grow in love for God, your capacity to love others will grow. So they're never at odds with each other. And in fact, if you get the order wrong, the very ones you claim to love might be hurt and damaged. And we see that play out again and again in relationships. Okay. Now this is the point where oftentimes people go, Okay, yeah, I get it here and there, but we're still way different than those ancient people like like we're not that dumb. We we're, we're not going I'm not going down to the temple of Aphrodite and sacrificing a goat. Like I don't do that. Like clearly we've grown and you know, truth be told, we are the most advanced human civilization to ever grace God's green earth. We are the pinnacle of human society and culture. We don't do this dumb stuff like people did. It's like, man. We touched on this a little bit at Easter, but there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Human beings are doing the same stuff. The, the means and mechanism by which we worship the idol might have changed, but make no mistake about it, the structure's still in place. We take things of lesser value in our lives and sacrifice them in order to obtain the things that we think we truly want and desire. We do this all the time. So on Easter, we mentioned, uh, so picture like uh, A dad who who is experiencing a lot of success at work and he's gonna work long hours and he keeps working more and more hours. And pretty soon he's working more and more hours. He's hardly ever home, but you know what? He's got success, he's got money, man, he's got the nice new car, his kids are taken care of, he's got the big house, everything's everything's great in his eyes. But what is he essentially doing? He's exchanging something that is of lesser value in his life for the thing in which he truly loves. He hasn't gone to the temple of Aphrodite or Mars, but he is literally sacrificing his children on the altar of success. He is sacrificing his relationship with his kids in order to get the thing that he actually deep down wants above everything else. Sacrificing children on the altar of success. Or think about, um, like, we we don't sacrifice to Aphrodite. Come on. How many of people in our culture, how many in particular maybe young women are willing to sacrifice anything and everything to obtain a, a standard of beauty so that they might seem they are loved by men or a certain man in particular? This is, this ha- it's like, come on. There are people who will sacrifice a lot more than a simple goat to get that. Do anything. So yeah, some of the, the externalities have changed, but we're still taking things of lesser value and sacrificing them on some altar to get the thing that we really, really deep down want. And you know, at this point, oftentimes people will say, well, I'm not very religious. So I know I'm not doing what those ancient people, and I know you Christians, you believe in that idolatry stuff, but I don't even believe in God like God. So this doesn't apply to me. I'm not religious. I don't do religion. Everyone does religion all of the time. Human beings are hopelessly religious. We're hopelessly religious. Whatever is at the top of your hierarchy of values is functioning as your God. Whatever you value most in life, whatever you love or desire most, the thing that is most important to you is functioning as your god, and you set up rituals and rites and habits and practices that encircle that which is most important, so that you are better able to maintain this or obtain this. You look at someone's life, you figure out what is most important to them, and there's structures, there's habits and rites and rituals that are set in place to, in order to maintain that. So think for um, so back back in the day, thousands of years ago. Um, There was something called the imperial cult and this is where people would worship the emperor as a god and sometimes oftentimes they wait for him to die and when he dies someone would come out and say like we saw caesar ascend to the stars and now he's he's up there like a god Um, but sometimes emperors were worshipped in their lifetimes as a god and what people would do is you know the emperor would go to a stadium and he'd walk in and everyone would be cheering and shouting his name. There would be, like, poems that were recited. And people would cheer at his every word. And, like, if, if Caesar walked by you, you would, like, shake. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I got close to Caesar because he's functioning as your sacred space. He's, he's now holy space. And so to get near him has this emotional kind of reaction. It's like, man, people were so stupid back then. They thought Caesar was like a god. We don't have an imperial cult anymore. We have a celebrity cult. We have people who adore and give their attention to celebrities and pop stars to such a degree that it's no different than the imperial cult. I mean, you're online obsessing about their like their personal life. You're you're going to obsess about these stars' personal lives. And you're going to know every detail and you're going to go to a concert where you will sing at the top of your lungs every word to their songs because you have them memorized. And by the way, you will sing those songs louder than you've ever sang at any religious service in your life before. <laughs> and maybe you got like a VIP, VIP backstage pass and the pop star walked by you. Yeah, there's tons of videos of this. What, do you, what happens? You see people start crying and their bodies are shaking. Why? Because someone with sacred space, holy space, just walked by them. That's holy, sacred space. That's a religious structure there. And then you even buy a shirt. First service, I said, you know, you take 12 bucks and buy a shirt. And I was like, 12 bucks, that's how much shirts cost when I was going to concerts. You no 12 bucks anymore. That shirt's going to be 35 bucks to buy. So you spend 35 bucks to get a shirt. Now, the pop star don't need no 35 bucks. And you don't need another shirt. But you want to demonstrate your adoration of the one whom you love. Do you follow this? Now, again, is there anything wrong with going to a concert or even buying merchandise? No. All things in their right order, right? You can love something, but it can't overtake God. And I can tell you in our culture, we have a celebrity cult. We absolutely have a celebrity cult. And so people who are famous, they, they have people who, they, they don't even know, you don't even know it, but all of a sudden your life has structures in place that are built around them. And so oftentimes this is where like, especially dudes for the most part, like, yeah, you know, you tell them, pastor, I can't, I hate that my, my teenage daughter just obsesses over, I actually had to Google who was a famous pop star Cause I realized whatever illustration I was going to use was going to be extremely dated. <laughs> you know? So I looked it up, who's very famous right now, and there's someone named Olivia Rodrigo. Okay, very famous. So, yeah, I hate that she's just obsessed with this person and just like, oh, dad, you think you're different. You don't have another religious structure at play. You don't have a ritual that you perform every Sunday. There's, there's this ritual that takes place like every Sunday. And what you do is you go into your sacred space and the sacred space has been organized to put all the attention on one part of the environmental layout. And, and there's, there's a screen and it dominates your attention. It's what you focus on for several hours. And if anyone disrupts your ritual, you're grouchy and you're upset. And as I've mentioned before, some of you grew up in environments and some of you are creating environments right now. And if you are, I do hope you feel convicted about this. You're creating environments and some of you grew up in them where to try and talk to dad after his team loss was something you didn't do fathers, if you are creating an environment where your children cannot approach you because your team lost, you're creating a massive issue here. And so you have this whole thing set in place and you can say, you know, you you cheer and you shout and you might even go to one of these in person and fill up an arena. And when so-and-so does something, the whole crowd's chanting their name. And people go so big that they'll even, like, dress up. <laughs> you know? You become the high priest of the Vikings. <laughs> now, I've been told this actually occurs among Christians. I, I don't have any examples of this occurring at this church, but I've heard from other pastors that sometimes Christians will skip church when a certain game's on? (laughs) Remember the hierarchy of values. So kids know that you skip church when a game's on. Kids will know who you worship. Kids will know who dad's idols are. They're always watching. May it never be the case in your household. Now, is there anything wrong with going to the concert or watching a game? No, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with even buying the, the Vikings gear and going to a game and cheering. They're, all things in their right order. And I just want to be careful because... You can immediately justify your sin. Oh, all things are in their right order. That's not, I don't have a problem. You got a problem. But it's not, it's not just the thing in and of itself. Okay. Now, there's an even deadlier nature to idols. Is Idols will take advantage of hurts, pains, and traumas in your life, and they will become like a barbed hook. And they'll hook themselves in you and it'll be very difficult to get out. So for those of you who don't know what I mean by a barbed hook, here's a fishing hook. And on the tip of the hook, there's a point and that'll get into your skin really easy. But the barbed is the bottom point. And so what happens is, and for those of you who fish a lot, you know sometimes you, get, you hook yourself on it. It just happens. I don't know how, but it happens all the time. You hook yourself and the hook goes in and the barb easily goes in. And then you immediately try to pull the hook out and what happens, the barb catches the flesh and it hurts. And so you go, oh, i got a hook and i got to take it out. Ah! And you go again. And what you have to do is you either have to just rip out all of the flesh with it or you have to rotate that hook all the way through. But you got to pick which way. But the barb gets you. And this is the, the sinister nature of idols. The idols look for hurt and pains and wounds in your life to grab a hold of. And like a barbed hook, they set themselves in. And at first you might want to take it out, but then it hurts and you let go. So let's go back to an example from earlier. Picture the the father who's working extra hours so that he could be successful. And you go, "This, this, this dad is just so greedy. He doesn't even care about his kids. He doesn't love them. He's sacrificing them on the altar. Maybe, or sometimes, the barbed hook went in. So let's go back further in this guy's life. Let's go back to his childhood. And let's say he grew up poor, and I mean dirt poor. Extremely poor, extreme poverty. And so he went to school with the same set of clothes on pretty much every single day, and those clothes had holes in them. And he would have shoes that were two sizes too big because he got his brother's old shoes as hand-me-downs and they had holes in them. And when he went to school, everyone would make fun of him. Some of you this is your story. You know what I'm talking about. And you were shamed just going to school because you know it would be another day of me being made fun of. So every day is shame and fear. And then at one point, let's say you're 12 or 13 years old, this light bulb goes off in your head and you say, you know what? I'm gonna grow up and I'm gonna have a family of my own. And I will never ever allow my kids to have the life that I had. I'm gonna give them something better i not gonna let my kids have to go through what I go through every day. And that boy grows up and he has a great high school, he graduates from a great college, he gets a great job and has experienced success and he's making a lot of money and guess what he does? He buys his kids the best clothes and he works really hard to provide for them. And he makes sure that the kids get dropped off in a nice car because they can't just have nice clothes, everyone needs to know that they're dropped off in something nice too. And he wants them to have more dignity than he ever had growing up, so they have a really nice home too. And so he's working the extra hours again and again and again and again and again and becoming more successful. All the while, the one thing that the kids need most is not more nicer clothes, they need dad. But the idolatry snuck in in the wound and now it's barbed, and it's gonna be incredibly difficult to take it out. That's the sinister nature of idolatry. Takes advantage of those weak points. And it ensnares you. Or picture the woman, the young woman who's obsessed with beauty. And you could look at her, man, she just jumps from relationship to relationship. And it's like, well, when she grew up, her dad left. And she was always looking for some type of masculine fatherly approval. And she never got it. So she was starving for it and then she realized if she could be a little flirtatious and hang out with the boys that she would get this attention she would need and she developed dysfunctional relationships with one boy after another and now when one dysfunctional relationship ends she immediately feels the pain and the hurt of not having that approval so she jumps into another one. And she actually deep down knows it. You know? I shouldn't be settling for these guys. They're not good. I deserve better. I shouldn't treat myself like this but it's like the barb hooked is in deep and every time you try to get away, you feel that sting. And see, this is where you have to realize that the idols promise you joy, contentment, and happiness. They appear as angels of light. But as they promise life, they give you death. Death. They have the appearance of life and goodness, but they are monsters. And these monsters will ensnare you and enslave you, and they will demand more of you. The gods will always demand more sacrifice, more. You must do more. You must work harder. You must acquire more. You must get in this better relationship. And there's always a demand to sacrifice more and more. And the more you do that, the more the monster enslaves you. It promises life, but it gives you death. Because, you know, once you got the nice clothes, like I said, well, then you need the nice car because you can't have the nice clothes and then come out of a junky car. And then, you know, you got to impress the boys at work. And you can't invite them to your home because, you know, it's too small. So you got to get the nice house. And then by the time you finally get the nice house, you look back and you go, you know, my clothes actually aren't as nice as the people on the floor that I work with now. So I got to spend some more money on some nicer stuff. Cust- you know, the other dudes come with custom fit. And then now the car's three years old. And it doesn't impress like it used to. And your house isn't big enough. And so what do you do? You repeat the cycle again and again and again. And the more you do it, the more you become enslaved to it. Because you drink a little bit of the murky puddle water and it does help your thirst in that moment. But then it leaves you more thirsty and more poison than when you left off. And now you're in this cycle of sin and sadness. Serving the idol that you manufactured with your own hands. You used to get just enough of a high off of this much of some substance abuse, and then you have to double it to get the same feeling. You used to say, I don't really have a problem. I only look at things uh, every so often on the internet that I know that I shouldn't, but it's not really taking over. And then it's every week. And then it's every day. And now it's affecting your marriage. And the idol has you. Its hooks are in you. And that's the monster that it is. It promises you life, but it gives you death. And they're always gonna demand more and more of you. Now, in the middle of all of this, the Christian has to understand that we're created to drink water. And there's two paths before us. There's the murky puddle with the gross water, and then there's God himself, who looks down upon humans in our idolatry, where human beings are making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And in that situation, God himself says, enough. Enough. No more of this. No more sacrifices. I myself will become the final sacrifice once and for all to do away with this. And God himself comes in the person and work of Jesus and becomes the one final lasting sacrifice for all humanity. While we are sacrificing, trying to earn it, trying to prove ourselves, God comes down and freely gives of his own being. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So, what we're going to do for the next three weeks is we're going to look at the nature of idolatry and different components of idolatry money and, and lust and power and all these different things and look at how they grab a hold of us and how they set their hooks in us. And every time we're going to look at then the gospel and how the gospel is the means and mechanism and power by which we can be freed from these things. Because Christ offers the water. He gives it freely. What do you have to do to earn the water? How good do you have to be? How high do you have to climb to get the water? You don't have to do anything. He gives it freely. It says, come and drink. And in drinking that water, there is power to defeat the idolatry that's in your life. We're going to transition to communion and close with a song. Now, As we prepare for communion, you have to understand that what we're about to do is powerful. This is how we do battle with the idols in our lives. You go, well, how does that work? Because we are remembering the truth of the gospel and what Christ did on our behalf. We tell ourselves the truth of who we are in Christ, what he did on our behalf. And when we take this and remember what Christ has done, there is power in that. And so we do battle. We do spiritual warfare when we take communion. So let's stand as we we take. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said, this is my body broken for you. He goes to the cross. He fights on our behalf and we remember what he's done for us. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And so when we take this now, we say, Lord, we wanna be faithful. And so Lord, we say, we wanna drink from the springs. We wanna drink from living water. Help us break the habits that we have of going to the, to the polluted murky water. We wanna drink freely of the life-giving water. And so Lord, we remember your death and we proclaim your resurrection until your return. As we close in worship, Lord, this is our act of adoration. We sing to you for you are worthy. You are the being that is most worthy of worship. And we will use everything we have to declare that, our hands, our feet, and our voices in song. So may your son be honored in this time. It's in his name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.